Have you ever walked past a dumpster and been like, yo, I wonder what's in that dumpster? I can put on these glasses. Let's start eating that trash can. You're listening to the True Crime Dumpster Podcast with hosts Amy and... And I'm Kevin. And we're coming back at you after a long break. A long, much-needed break. With episode number 81, The Murder of Jenna Nanetti. It's hard to get these episodes out now. There's a lot going on here. Where there? <laughs> uh, yeah, we have a child who is crawling everywhere and is starting to not like napping and really, really likes us. I don't know why. Maybe because we feed her. Yeah, that's probably it. So anyways, better late than never. But it's not even really late. We, we, we needed that time off. We were in Portland for a couple weeks seeing our friends up there and it was nice to spend time with family and so, yeah, we're doing it now. And I thought that we would bring in the new year with a listener suggestion. So this comes from a listener named Jennifer, who is actually friends with the victim in high school. They, I believe, grew up in the same town. So once I started to look into the case, I knew we had to cover it. So thank you so much for the suggestion. I got a lot of the material from actually a link she provided me with, which was basically the court documents and also from two different episodes of salacious true crime one was wicked attraction i love that band (laughs) is that a band (laughs) no it sounds like it could be and then (laughs) the name of the episode was called deadly rival which also could be the name of a band (laughs) good album yeah so that's season four episode nine if you're interested and i also got information from snapped killer couples episode I, it says 704, but I'm sure it was like it's like season something. Oh, you know what? It was probably season seven, episode four or something. Anyways, both were really ridiculous episodes. So this all happened in a town called Livermore, which is about 45 miles southeast of San Francisco. It really looks beautiful. It's like all vineyards and it seems like it's kind of like a getaway spot. It's kind of like how Ventura is to like L.A. maybe, you know, or Santa Barbara. It's like this beautiful place just out of town where all of a sudden there's like rolling hills and greenery. So it's just like an easy, quick escape from the Bay Area. This is where our listener presumably grew up and where Jenna Nanetti lived with her grandparents. They had been her legal guardians since she was a toddler. Her father was in and out of trouble, a perpetual alcoholic. Often Jenna would pick him up from his local bar called the Mountain House Cafe a local hangout for Hells Angels and other motorcycle groups. Not much is known about her mother other than she gave Jenna up. Linda Nanenny, which is Jenna's grandmother, took out a $50,000, some places said $100,000, some places said $50,000. It was about half and half. So I'm going to go with $50,000, but I just want to say that there was a range between $50,000 to $100,000. So she took out this large sum, as an insurance policy on Jenna, which sounded kind of weird, but she did it to save or to provide money for Jenna's college fund. And I was I was kind of curious about that. And in the Wicked Attraction episode, it kind of talked about how it's like a it's like a loan you can take out and borrow from. So it's like she let's say she has a fifty thousand dollar insurance policy, 
she can borrow from it knowing that the eventual payout will happen so if she's like so like you can borrow like 20,000 of it and now it's a $30,000 insurance policy. Isn't that kind of weird? Yeah. I, I don't know how it worked, but that's how it was described. And it makes sense because every source I looked at, which there was a lot of like local news from the time period that I looked at, everything basically mentioned this insurance policy that paid for her college education or was going to pay for her college education. But it was really only like one or two places that explained how that was possible. So apparently that's a thing. I did not know that was a thing. Anyways, Linda, you have to have a beneficiary in case the person does die. Uh-huh. And so Linda, her grandmother, was the beneficiary of the policy. Got it. Jenna is described as a tough goth chick. And in the episodes and pictures that you can find of her online, she's always wearing like black chokers and like black tank tops and stuff like, you know, dark red lipstick. Nothing like I didn't look like in high school. So she definitely would have been my friend. And... We're almost exactly the same age because she actually graduated high school the same year I graduated high school, but she graduated a year early. So she is technically, she would have, if she was still alive, she would be 36. Like I said, she was described as a tough goth chick with long red hair and blue eyes. She ran with angry, disaffected teens, many of which were either dropouts or attended the local continuation school like she did. They hung out at a local internet cafe when that was still a thing. Yeah. You remember internet cafes? I, well, I have never went to any in the States, but yeah, like when I was you, in Mexico. Yeah, or like, you do. You know, yeah. You yeah. go to internet cafes when you're in other countries. I don't even know if they exist anymore, but anyways, they would hang out at their local internet cafe and they worked low end jobs and partied in the hills surrounding the town. When she was 17 years old, she became reacquainted with a dude named Mike, Mike Simons, an exceptionally this is a quote i don't think he's exceptionally good looking but he kind of looks like a caveman no he does he he's like fine he totally looks like a jarhead like he looks like he's gonna be military he was supposed to join so anyways he was a quote-unquote exceptionally good looking 20 year old that she'd known since middle school he was different from the other annoying high school boys he seemingly had his shit together and was planning on joining the military he had come back into town and had a whirlwind romance that resulted in a marriage. So again, Jenna is 17. He's 20. It's not a huge age gap, but she's like still in high school and he is about to join the military and he's been out of high school for a few years. So there's definitely like a maturity gap. But also, you can't legally marry unless you're over the age of 18. So she actually had to get her grandparents' consent for this to happen. So in order for that to happen, you have to legally emancipate from your guardian in order to get married and when i taught at the alternative school kind of similar to i'm sure the school she went to there were kids that many of my kids emancipated from their parents to get married under the age of 18 and a lot of that had to do with cultural stuff you know i had a lot of i had a lot of married teen parents one of which like was married for like five years because like in her country it wasn't weird right and she had like four kids it was pretty crazy She was a wonderful, wonderful student. But anyways, so this happened in June of 2002. So she basically graduated a year early and got married in the same month, which is a lot of growing up at one time. And the grandparents definitely consented, partially because she seemed really happy. You know, I think she was kind of this dark, edgy chick. And I don't mean that in like a mean way or anything at all. But like she was kind of like, fuck everything, you know. And then all of a sudden she became... What they actually, there's like material quoted saying that she acted sparkly. 
like she was just happy and she would she would call her boy or I guess husband things like hun where all of a sudden like she wasn't this hard a bat caver a what a bat caver that's what, what we called goth oh really yeah, yeah she was a bat caver and then all of a sudden there were like doves in her cave so <laughs> it made her grandparents happy so they actually I guess there were sources that said that they weren't like stoked on the union but they loved how happy it made her so they consented so they had dated for a whopping six months or less before they tied the knot. Mike was impressed by how much Jenna had it all together. She was just about to graduate from high school and she already had a job and was making money. And then on top of that, her grandparents gifted her with a Mustang as a wedding present. And it was actually like, I believe it was it was definitely in her name, but I think it was also in Mike's name, too, because that was her husband now. Like so a like, wedding present. Yeah, it was a wedding present. And he was allowed to move in and live there basically for free. So he was definitely benefiting from this relationship. I know it's hard to believe, but just about a month into their relationship, the marriage had already turned sour. Weird, right? After a month, you said. Yeah, it was about six weeks, anywhere between like a month to six weeks. But I think by the sixth week of marriage, he was already out of there. He was already asking for a divorce. He had the seventh seven month itch no he had the six week itch well they had been dating for six months before oh i see yeah so mike moved out and told jenna that he wanted a divorce he was reportedly angry that jenna did not want the divorce she wanted to work on the marriage mike became verbally abusive and at one point said i'm going to kill you that might be a sign to leave yeah and i think (laughs) that the reason we know he said that is that i think she went and told friends that you know, he threatened to kill her. But, you know, it's one of those things like that could easily be construed in the moment of, you know, it's just anger. I don't I don't believe that Jenna actually believed he was going to kill her. He told an acquaintance that he would, quote unquote, take care of her. And then after the separation, Linda, the grandmother, actually registered the Mustang in her own name because she's like, fuck that. I don't want him to end up getting this in the divorce. She didn't actually say that, but that's what yeah. I'm imagining she was thinking. Smart move. Mike Simons met another teenage girl in Livermore and moved in with her and her mother. His new girlfriend, Katie Bellflower, was a pale, unpopular 17-year-old with a penchant for going after other girls' boyfriends. Yeah, and in the Snapped Killer Couples episode, they really ragged on her. They're like, she's a slut. She likes to steal other people's boyfriends. Like, look at this slutty girl. And it's like, whoa. But... Is there a name for chicks that do that? Sluts? Well, then they called. I mean, um, I would say gold digger, but it's not gold digger. Dick digger. I don't <laughs> <laughs> I, so, she just like fucking around. She was a flirt. I don't well, know. She didn't like guys that were easy to get. Right. Yeah. That's kind of what the episode was insinuating. Like she liked the chase and she liked guys that were already taken. Yeah. And so then once the guy showed interest in her, then she would ditch him and move on to the next mark. But there was definitely something about Mike. That caught her eye. So on the evening of October 6, 2002, Jenna left her grandmother's house to go discuss her future with Mike. Around 9.15 that night, she left her grandmother a voicemail saying that she had gotten into an altercation with another woman, but that she was okay. She said that she was with friends and that she would be okay and that her grandmother could call her back on her cell. When her grandmother tried to call her back, it went straight to voicemail. After that, Jenna also contacted her father, Jim Nanetti. There, she left a more distraught voicemail. 
dad, call me now. I probably got a concussion. I just got hit upside the head with a baseball bat or whatever the fuck it was. I need your help. Call me. Jim tried to call his daughter numerous times. Again, all of his calls went to voicemail. It sucks because, as you're going to find out, these were like literally the last moments of her life. Both of them went to voicemail. I fucking hate voicemail. I know. I hate voicemail, too. But if you think about it, like these are I mean, and we're going to find out later. These are the last moments of life she has left. And she, you know, I I don't know. It's just so sad that like she obviously was trying to reach out to family for some help or advice or whatever she was thinking in that moment. And she didn't get to talk to anyone. So essentially, she's going to end up like dying pretty much alone, like surrounded by people who fucking hate her. Yeah, it's this whole thing is this really is sad. Bleak. In the wee hours of October 7th, 2002, several hours after Jenna had tried to reach both her grandmother and father, her car was found torched in the parking lot of the Mountain House Cafe, the same biker bar that her dad would frequent. One of the workers said that it wasn't rare to see a car be stripped and burning in the lot. Cool place. <laughs> yeah, I know. <laughs> what is this, Portland? Yeah, right? <laughs> they noted there was no one inside. When police figured out that the car was registered to Linda Nanetti, they went to her home to let her know. Linda told police that the car was actually her granddaughter's and that her and Jenna's father had been trying to get a hold of her. The calls that Jenna made were within 10 miles of the biker bar. Did she get caught up in a turf war? This theory was quickly debunked. When they looked further into her life, they found that her husband had a criminal past one count of car theft, and some other priors. When the police went to speak with Mike Simons, he was surprised to hear about her and the car. He had already moved on with his new girlfriend, Katie Bellflower. In fact, she was pregnant and also 17. Damn, that went quick. Sounds like a winger song. (laughs) Pregnant and 17? Yeah, something like that. (laughs) He apparently had a thing for 17-year-olds. Mike Simons, not Kip Winger, hopefully. No, they have a thing for 16-year-olds, right? Like 17. 16. Is that the song? No, you're. Th- I think that's a Kiss song. Oh. <laughs> Bunch of sketchy old fucks. <laughs> yeah. Anyhow, oh, he told. That's like my old band director, teacher. He used to sing me that song like, you're 15, you're beautiful, and you're mine. Creepy dude. I'm not going to say his name, but for those of you who went to Cameron Hill High School when I did, not the old guy, but the newer one, he was fucking creepy, right? Okay. Keep going. More than words, too. That was his... his. <laughs> oh, yeah. More than words. Oh, yeah. Extreme, right? Uh-huh. That was pretty extreme. He, was into mo- he had a book of monster ballads he would sing me. I was his TA for a guitar class. Did it work? If you want to talk some about some true crime, <laughs> fucking Camarillo High School in the early 2000s was all just creepy old men. Anyhow. <laughs> yeah, that was a little bit of an aside. <laughs> he told the police that, yes, she had come to talk about the relationship. He gave her 10 bucks for gas so she can get home. Nice conversation. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Well, and also, Good I talk. think. Here's I, 10 bucks. Well, we know that the reality of it is it. We obviously just listening know that the reality of it is that he probably told her to like fuck off or something, right? It wasn't probably a good conversation, but he's making it seem like to the cops that things were amicable between them and like, oh, let me give you $10 from gas. But it's like, how could they be amicable? They've only been married for six weeks and he's already. You know, knocked shacked up, up. His other... yeah, he knocked up and shacked <laughs> up with his new girlfriend, which even begs the question that, you know, if she already knows that she's pregnant, you know, six weeks after he's married to this other girl, then he was probably fucking around with her before he married Jenna, right? 
I one mean, would think. Yeah. Ugh. So Mike said that about 45 minutes after she left, she called him on her cell, telling him that she had been assaulted and was going to a bar to get drunk. He said he and Katie walked to a park to talk about their relationship for the next two and a half hours. So the part of this that doesn't seem real is like, what 20-year-old dude wants to talk about his relation, one relationship at first and then the other one next for two and a half hours? Not That's this a guy. Lie. That's a lie. Well, you know what? When you're 20, did you talk about your relationship? You did, didn't you? No. Okay, so this is What relationships? <laughs> I just feel like this isn't totally realistic. Yeah, no. Now in my life, I wouldn't even want to talk about our relationship <laughs> for two hours. <laughs> Not even 20 minutes. So Katie confirmed this. Katie said that she saw Jenna leaving right before they went to the park. To her understanding and Mike's, the marriage between Mike and Jenna was going to be annulled. Everyone was happy. Mike and Katie were going to become engaged. Ugh. God, just an- annul one marriage and then jump straight into the next one That's at 20. Yeah, smart. It's, it's not, but okay. <laughs> Ground, air, and canine searches began to find the missing Jenna. Investigators went to the high school Jenna attended to learn more about her. Friends said that she was a quote-unquote scrapper and would stand up against anyone who messed with her. Friends thought that she would come back. Investigators continued to look into all aspects of her life. A $5,000 reward was offered for any information about Jenna's whereabouts. Nothing. The only thing that stood out was her husband. Then, almost two weeks later, on October 19th, 2002, Jenna's decomposing body was found by a fisherman in the bushes on the lower Jones Island in the Delta. Super sad. I mean, everybody in Jenna's life genuinely thought that she was going to come back. Yeah, it sucks, too, because she, despite being the dark goth chick she was, she seemed like a decent person. And there were, they even like followed the lead. I guess she made a kind of a, a pact with a friend that they would go hitchhike around the country and then pretend that they were dead and just kind of like get a death they're like did you know that like if so no they're one gonna here, fake their own they, death they were they like kind of jokingly talked about it that's the kind of things that she would joke around about like i just don't want to be found you know and i can like you know cash out on my own insurance policy i don't know if she actually said that but i'm just saying like she would actually have these conversations with friends so that when her friends found out that she was missing there was no way to indicate that she had been harmed in any way so she had two shotgun wounds to her chest, consistent with the shotgun being fired at a close range of between one to three feet. The shotgun shell found at the scene was identified as being fired from a Remington shotgun. Now, the investigation has taken a turn. Instead of investigating a missing person, they were now investigating a homicide. They go back to re-interview Mike and Katie. This time, Mike slips up and mentions a third person, Jeffrey Hamilton, nobody's favorite character in this story. Big fat cuck, right? <laughs> he might be out soon, so you might want to take that back. Come look me up. Katie hadn't mentioned him, so they knew that there was something up. Why would one person lie and the other person not? Jeffrey Hamilton worked at the local ice rink and was regarded as a loner, and I think they were insinuating he was kind of a loser, too. Jeffrey and Katie had a very friendly relationship, kind of like brother and sister. He was also 20 years old, so he was a couple years older than her. He was the same age as Mike. 
I don't think it was more like a brother and well, sister. Well, that's what it said. Unless the brother wanted to fuck the sister. Yeah, that's so in the police interviews. He says, I'm like her big brother. She's like my little sister. And these are totally separate interviews. And then Katie says, he's like my big brother. I'm like his little sister. So they they reiterate that they have like this familial bond. But definitely everybody thinks that Jeffrey had a humongous crush on Katie. But it was never actually said out loud. Obviously. No one's going to do shit for some chick. Okay, because... we'll, we'll, we'll get there. He was never known to have a girlfriend and definitely had a thing for Katie. I kind of got from the police interview, too, that he kind of seemed to be a little bit on the spectrum. But I don't obviously want to diagnose anyone I don't know. When investigators asked Jeffrey about his whereabouts on the night that Jenna went missing, he confirmed Mike's side of the story, saying that he met the couple that night at the park. In fact, you know, the three of them were so close that they even went to Jenna's funeral together. The case seemed to be cooling down, but everything changed in the early morning of March in 2003 at three in the morning, nearly five months after Jenna's murder. On Altamont Pass, there was a scenic overlook called the Top of the World. Officer Tim Phillips, who really loves doing interviews, he was in every single thing that I watched about this. He's got a face for TV. <laughs> so he liked to make the rounds up there as it was a local hangout for kids to do bad things like drink and do drugs. You mean have fun? <laughs> yeah. You know, he said at 3 a.m. it was usually pretty quieted down and there's usually no one up there. But he kind of just felt like he needed to, you know, make a round. And he said that he noticed that there was a car parked with the lights off and he rolled up on a group of young people doing some weird shit. So one girl was on the ground and then a boy and a girl with gloves, like latex gloves, were kind of kneeling over her, kind of like manhandling her. And there was also a rope in the mix. Like there was like a rope on the ground. That is some weird shit. And so Officer Phillips asked them like what's going. He kind of rolled up. He kind of crept up on them. He like turned his lights down. And then it was all what's going on folks. And they said that their friend was sick and that they were helping her out. And when he asked why they had gloves on. They're like oh well just in case she like barfs. We don't want to get it on our hands. Because they just have medical gloves just. That's just, that's just as you do, you know. I always have them. I always wear them. <laughs> uh, yeah. So the girl with the gloves on asked the dude, oh, did you? <laughs> this part is so ridiculous. Yeah, she says, smooth. oh, did you forget to leave that rope at work? Because she's trying to explain. Because like the officer's clearly looking at the rope on the ground that yeah. was strangling the girl. They, I mean, he didn't see that part. But he was like, uh yeah that's it and he slowly picked it up and put it back in his pocket what rope yeah boom everything explained nothing weird going on here right so they gave their real names to the officer jeffrey hamilton and katie bellflower our two friends from earlier the girl on the ground says that her name is aspen loom she's 16 and lives nearby the officer could barely hear her Officer Phillips has dispatch call the girl's house, but there is no answer. So Jeffrey and Katie offer to take Aspen home. So they do. Nothing weird there. Yep. After Katie, Jeffrey, and Aspen leave, the officer gets a call from the dispatcher from Aspen's family. They realize they couldn't find her and were worried that she had run away. Officer Phillips speeds ahead to find Katie and Jeffrey back on the road having just dropped Aspen off. 
I'm assuming what happened is that the police officer probably had dispatch call the house and everybody was sleeping and they couldn't get to the phone in time. And then they probably went to go look and Aspen wasn't there. And that's when they realized, oh, shit, she's gone. So that's probably what happened. Quite possibly. So the officer makes them wait while he calls the family to see if this is the case. Yes, Aspen is home. He lets Katie and Jeffrey go. Technically, there was no crime here. Yet. But then the family is like, wait, actually, those two that dropped her off, they were actually trying to kill her. Like, this was kind of like a comedy of errors almost. So you know what I mean? How could that not be conveyed in this call like, that basically, the cop got Basically, I back? think that when dispatch called, because again, it's the officer calling dispatch and the dispatch calling the family and the family talking to Aspen. So there's like three degrees of separation. So everything's kind of coming in waves, like the information. So I think that the first time that the officer has dispatch call Aspen's home to see if she arrived there safely, like how Katie and Jeffrey said, they're like, yep, she's home. And then I think they hang up. And then that's when Aspen's like gasping for breath. That's why she was like whispering prior because she had been choked out and she was like, they were trying to kill me. Right. And then when they realized, I think they were just relieved to find her. And then when they realized they're like, oh, fuck, someone tried to kill her. That's when they call back. So it's just like this kind of like so many degrees of separation. Obviously, the police aren't calling, you know, the policeman isn't calling the family directly. It's all this, you know kind of degrees telephone of separation game. it's a telephone game exactly right. so he like lets Ka i think what happened is that he lets katie and jeffrey go then he gets a call back saying that you know this was actually a murder attempt and then he finds them again so he's just like ah like his for i i you know obviously he didn't have anything to hold them on but it's just kind of crazy he let them go kind of like three different times this night and then he was like actually you guys are arrested for attempted murder so She's got rope strangulation marks all over her neck and she's screaming bloody murder. So the officer turns his lights on and cuffs Katie and Jeffrey. During the first interview, Katie says that she would never hurt Aspen. In fact, they were very close. Very, very close. Like in love, but like sisterly. But sisterly like sisterlies. <laughs> and yeah. so it's just like Those she, my kind of she was really trying to convey to the police, no, I would never hurt her. I like love her like a sister, but I also like want to fuck her <laughs> like and strangle her at yeah. the same time in another room jeffrey was asked the same line of questions but he came out with yeah we tried to kill her <laughs> he said he was just trying to follow katie's commands apparently she had recently found out that her dude mike was cheating on her with aspen even though she was pregnant uh five months pregnant in fact after she found that out Rather than, I don't know, approach Mike about it, she's like, hey, Jeffrey, BFF, big bro, can we kill Aspen? Like, can you help me kill Aspen? And he was like, no, definitely no. And he's like, straight up, no. But then he was like, okay. <laughs> <laughs> That's a firm maybe. So they lure Aspen out with booze and the chance to hang out at the park, which apparently worked. Then Jeffrey snuck up on her with netting from a hockey net that he got from the ice rink and proceeded to strangle her. And that officer came right when that started, basically. If he hadn't come, Aspen could potentially be dead. So in one of the shows, is it Jeffrey that's strangling her? Mm -hmm. From behind, the girl's getting strangled. She's like, you know, obviously grabbing at her throat and stuff. And then Katie's like, grabbing her hand so she couldn't yeah break the stranglehold yeah That's so it was definitely up. yeah no it was definitely like a group effort 
once they know that, you know, this Aspen Lum thing was actually an attempted murder and Jeffrey is really copying to it and telling about Katie's involvement in it, that's when he just like continues to spill. And he's like, oh, and by the way, she also tried to kill Jenna Nanetti too. So the Jenna Nanetti thing had gone kind of cold. There were no leads. And then all of a sudden with this new incident, he's just like, oh, yeah, like this other thing, too. For the same reason, too. Jealousy. However, for Mike, he had alternative reasons. Remember, she had a 50000 or or $100,000 life insurance policy, and he figured that he was the beneficiary because he was her spouse. But I don't think no, the, the names were never changed on the document, so Linda was still the beneficiary. So they both had their reasons for wanting to kill Jenna. You know, he wanted that money. She didn't want the divorce, and he did, and he wanted to move on, and she didn't. So those were his reasons. These two psychos actually approached Jeffrey about it. So they had kind of made up their mind. Let's kill Jenna and let's bring this guy in on it. They so planned he can help this us. for a while. Yeah. yeah. So they said that if he played the getaway driver in his Dodge Neon, because I don't think either one of them had a car. Jenna was the only one with a car and obviously not being with her. He didn't have access to it. So they got him in on, on their plan because he had a Dodge Neon. And they would let him live in their house that they would buy with the life insurance payout that Mike would surely get. This seems like a pretty solid plan. In preparation for the trap, Katie got a Remington shotgun that she had previously given away. And she bought six or seven boxes of ammunition. All three had gone to Whiskey Slough twice to test fire the shotgun. So Whiskey Slough is kind of like a... It's like a wetlands area near, yeah. it's like, I think it's like 40 miles away from Livermore, but it's, it's really, it's, it's still like fairly close. So that night that Jenna was last heard from was actually the night that Mike had lured her into his trap. Once she got there, they embraced and kissed and they actually like play wrestled, I heard in some sources. And she probably thought that things were going to work out. He was being so sweet to her. Little did she know that Katie was lying in wait with a baseball bat. She snuck up on Jenna and bashed her over the head, leaving a three-inch gash and left Jenna writhing in pain. As to why she didn't knock her out, Katie said that halfway through the swing, she started to regret her decision to hurt Jenna. Kill Jenna, really. Wow, she has a conscience. That's what she said. So that is what she says at trial, and it's because she's trying to lessen her involvement. Right. I don't fucking think she had a change of heart. I think she's a cold-blooded killer psychopath. She you just know what sucks I mean? at sewing a bat. I mean, in the span of five months while she's pregnant, she tries to kill two chicks. While she kills one, she tries to kill another. You know, like, if they hadn't stopped her, she would have continued to kill. Anyone that Mike looked at, she would have continued to kill. So I don't think she has this moment of, but I, I'm, I'm sure her, her lawyer told her to say that. Katie and Jeffrey peeled out. Mike made Jenna think that she was, he was shocked. Like, oh my God, why would she do that? Jenna wanted to go to the hospital, but Mike talked her into getting revenge on Katie instead. He said that they should drive out to Whiskey Slough, a remote wetlands area. I got to stop you right here. What? I mean, instead of going to the hospital, let's go to this desolate yeah, fucking place in the middle of nowhere in the middle of the night to right, go right get after, revenge. Right after I've asked for a divorce. Right after this chick came out of my own house with a baseball bat and hit you in the head. Yeah. I know. And, and I'm Jenna, shaking my head. And you Jenna guys can't was see so, Jenna was so blinded by love for him that she would do any... I mean, both of these girls would do anything for this piece of shit, right? It's fucked up. It's super fucked up. Oh, this part of it is so 
fuck, fucked as well. So Mike stopped for gas so it would have a full tank so that when he set fire to it, so he had, he knew he was going to do that. This was part of the plan. So he made sure to have a full tank of gas. Isn't that shitty? Yeah, these people I mean, are cunts. Yeah. It was on the way there that she makes the ominous phone calls to her grandmother and father. So like I said, these were the last things that she said to anybody who loved her, who actually loved her. Once they arrived at the pre-planned place, Katie and Jeffrey were waiting with the shotgun. Mike grabbed it from them and went back over to Jenna and shot her. Jeffrey said that he could see Jenna on the ground trying to back away from him, pleading, Mike, please don't. Mm. I know. She, to her, this was her husband. She was 17 years old. She didn't know anything else other than this man loves me and he married me. It's fucked. And now he's shooting her in the fucking stomach with a shotgun. And why the fuck would you shoot her in the stomach? Because he's a fucking evil motherfucker. You'll see he keeps shooting her. Katie confirmed that she heard her beg for her life. Mike shot her a second time. Jeffy heard her scream again. Then Mike went for a third shot. They didn't hear any more screams. However, she's still breathing. Mike went back up to the car to get more ammo. Jesus. He ran down I to know, shoot so Jenna. I know, she's just fucking still breathing and moving at this point after three shotgun blasts. So he ran down to shoot Jenna. This would be a fourth time and motioned the others to come down. He then shot her numerous more times. So didn't, when they found, found the body, didn't they said there was two? I Yeah, it's like two or three shotgun, but like, I think that, well, with a shotgun, it depends if they're using like buckshot or if they're using like a slug. You wouldn't be able to tell if they're, if this is buckshot, like she would have been obliterated. So maybe there was only like a if couple of If it was a slug, she would have been obliterated too. Yeah. I mean, because like this is a shotgun from, from three one feet away. to three feet yeah. away. So no matter so, what you're using. Yeah. It's so, I mean, any medical examination of her body would just, her body's obliterated at this point. When Jeffrey saw Jenna, her chest was blown open and the skin on her neck was peeled back. Fucked. Jeffrey took her wrist to feel for a pulse and then she let out a gurgly breath. There was some laughing among the group. Jesus Christ. Yeah, and they made a joke about how heavy she was because they, at this point, like, dragged her into the bushes. And they're like, oh, she sure is heavy, fat-ass wife or something. Like, I mean, fucking dicks. I hate these fucks. I hate them. It seems like Jeffrey was trying to impress Katie in some way. They made their way in the vehicles to the Mountain House Cafe. Mike set the car on fire and threw the weapon out of the car on the way back home. A week later, he went back for the gun and threw it out into the Oakland estuary. After Jenna was dead, Mike dreamed about the things he would do with the insurance payout. However, he didn't figure out that he wasn't the beneficiary. Her grandmother, Linda, was. So after Katie and Jeffrey spilt their guts to the police, they went and picked up Mike. In his version of events, it was Jeffrey who had fired the shots at Jenna at Katie's insistence. So he immediately is trying to like get more you know, blame off of him. He admits that he was there when and where Jenna was shot and sort of admits that he didn't want to save her life. He admits that he was the one who set her car on fire, but insists that he did not pull the trigger. So again, he's trying to lessen his involvement in the crime. Mike lead police to the dump shotgun. All three were charged with murder and lying in wait. This made them all eligible for the death penalty. Jeffrey made a plea deal 
to plead guilty to second-degree murder in exchange for his testimony against the other two. He got 15 years to life in prison. He also took police to where Jenna was killed and kind of explained things. That was part of his plea agreement. Jenna's family put a cross there to commemorate her. For trying to strangle Aspen, he got another seven years. So if he serves all of his time and gets out with any issue, he could be out as early as 2024 in just two short years. That's why I don't want to talk too much shit about him because he might be out soon. Fuck him. I know. Fuck him. And I mean, you know, that's if he if he gets parole. While waiting for her trial, Katie gave birth to her daughter who was put up for adoption. Luckily. Yeah. She changed her plea to guilty because she said she wanted to spare the victim's family the trauma of the trial. I bullshit. She just too bad she didn't die during because childbirth. like like Kevin Jesus. But I'm just saying that like she got 25 years to life. So anyways, of course Mike pled not guilty, but of he was found guilty of first degree murder, assault with a deadly weapon, and arson. He was sentenced to life without the possibility of parole. So what do you think? I think you already know what I think. Yeah. Terrible, I think all terrible. three of these cunts need to burn Yeah, in hell. Okay. Yeah, they're not good people, and unfortunately, they all found each other. And if they hadn't found each other, I think they would have still been as violent. You know, Jeffrey is kind of a chump, and if he had not gotten wrapped up with Mike and Katie's, you know, head games, I, maybe he could have been, but doesn't matter. He was like highly impressionable and obviously had a thing for Katie. So doesn't matter. Yeah, I, he I don't have done he, anything she wanted. I don't think he should be out soon. Just for to sm- sniff her underwear or something. I mean, he is only like two years older than me. So he's probably like 39 years old right now. He could have kids in a life you know what i mean he participated he attempted to kill one person and participated in the murder of another like i think him being out like in a couple years is fucking wrong like you know it's something we talked about in the eric smith case the last or in our last episode is just like we we hear about these murders we hear about these crimes but we don't often hear about them you know the murderers being let loose and like, yes, I believe in second chances. Yes, I re- believe in rehabilitation. But when it comes to murder, it's it's hard. Anyways, you can join our True Crime Dumpster Facebook group. You can follow us on Twitter, TC Dumpster, and on Instagram, True Crime Dumpster. You can email us at truecrimedumpster at gmail.com and listen to our shows. I think I'm taking our show off of YouTube. That's where we get some weird ass comments. But you can find us on all the platforms. I like those are my favorite comments. I, ugh. People are horrible on YouTube. If you're listening to this on have YouTube. You, have you been on the internet much? People are horrible on the internet. I know. People hey, are just kind of well, horrible. This is, a, this is a free service for our community. You know, informing people about stuff. Yeah. And talking shit. Mainly talking shit. About garbage. Garbage people. humans, yeah. Yes. So, I mean, like, if you have no something to say, you know, go fuck yourself. Anyways, hey now. don't forget to rate, review, and subscribe and tell your friends about our podcast. Except for your mean friends. Every review, rating, and referral helps us get to a larger audience. A larger mean audience. Yeah, they can DM me. I like those comments. No, don't. Don't. I don't want... Don't message us. (laughs) Tune in next... Well, thank you, Jennifer, for messaging us. Yes. And this was a really crazy case. Like, you think it's going to be over. Yeah, you think it's going to be over. And then all of a sudden, there's like this other thing. It's like the plots and the twist, you know? So tune in next time as we continue talking out this fucking trash goodbye goodbye